0: Welcome to Pod Save Africa. 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 To welcome to Pod Save Africa. Welcome to Pod Save Africa. Welcome to Pod Save Africa. Welcome. Hello, welcome back to Pod Save Africa. It's your host Akian really. and it's uh, it, it's been trying times, but it is good to be back with you all and to share the news of what's going on on the African continent today. Um we're going to be digging into quite a few things, but prior to kicking it off, it's important that we uh, share solidarity with the people of Ukraine. It's a tough time. Um, you know, we tend to be fairly consistent in our stance on sharing uh, you know, solidarity with people who are oppressed all over the world. Um, Ukraine being no exception to that rule at this point in time, but um, to the people in Ukraine, the people um, in Yemen, in, in other parts of the world that are suffering um, we hope for a quick change to that situation um and we hope for the we hope that those who are are disenabled from doing so um i never like to be a love and light sending kind of person um, but i do feel somewhat helpless as to some of the ongoing so on that end one of our first stories has to do with some injustice happening even within injustice we see at a high level. Michael, would you like to dive into that?
1: Yes, yes, so one of the biggest headlines across the world in terms of out, um ongoing situations is the situation in Ukraine as I kid' spoken to a little bit um Russia has been invading Ukraine and bombing and it's it's quite it's quite a crisis. Um and so many people are affected, so many people, Ukrainians as well as other people who have come to now known know Ukraine as home. Um, one of such group of people are Africans and there are many reasons why people migrate. one that I I can think of off the top of my head why Africans have migrated is Ukraine. Is one um Ukraine has really good like medical medical school medical schools and so a lot of Young Nigerians have migrated there before to pursue their medical um, dreams to become doctors and um, and other medical professionals. That's just one reason. It's not encompassing, of course, as to why Africans, um, such as Nigerians, have migrated to Ukraine. But now they found themselves in a sticky situation. As many have are fleeing Ukraine or have led Ukraine, some of which uh, are from Ukrainians themselves, as some of which are from other parts of the world, including from um the African continent. Africans have been stranded. They're being they arrive at the Poland border um as many have, and they're either not being let through or they are facing other forms of biases and injustices against them one can help but point at this being as a result of anti blackness that is rampant throughout the the world. Um but it's quite disheartening to hear because they also deserve safety and they also deserve to be able to not be succumbed to the unjust situation in Ukraine. So it's disheartening to see. So I urge everyone out there if you have contact if you know of anyone that could help to alleviate that situation to help Africans be able to safely cross over into Poland and into other neighboring Ukrainian countries so that to guarantee their safety, please do so. Akedi, any thoughts?
0: I'm, I'm 100% there with you. You know, just <laughs> it's almost it's a little frustrating to be honest with you. Not that it's unexpected, but. Seeing, um, I understand, you know, I, I, um, you know, lots of different things involved in letting refugees through, but still, you know, seeing, you know, watching videos of you know black people being hauled off trains I and mean, being stopped from crossing borders and things like that in the middle of a war—it's just like, ugh, come on, man! Like, really here to at this time?
1: Right.
0: Um, it it, it sucks to see. Um, doesn't feel good to see.
1: No, it doesn't I think another thing it points to is how easy it is to become a refugee um I mean the Ukrainian situation did not just happen um it, there was definitely a little bit of a build up, but still the impact that is had in the um amount of time that has happened it's just easy to that no I'm not saying anyone shouldn't feel comfortable. But I'm saying that we should more be more sympathetic to situations of refugees when we see them, when we hear about them, rather than have kind of a blindsided view or a lack of empathy towards them.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that story, I Um Unfortunately, this is one of those weeks where we have a lot of stuff going on, um, much of which is not pleasant. Yeah. Um, so we're going to take a, a short trip to East Africa. Um, so a story we've covered a few times over the course of the past two or three years, um, with the grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Mm-hmm. Um, the three major parties involved, as we've mentioned before, um Sudan, Egypt, and Ethiopia. But objectively, from lots of the statements, it's really an Egypt versus Ethiopia thing. Um, long story short, the Nile uh runs north and basically, Ethiopia wants to build, or well, Ethiopia has built a, a, a dam on the Nile, um, which concerns Sudan and Egypt because they're further downstream as a result. Um, they're worried that it will, you know, lead to them having reductions in their water supply, et cetera, et cetera. And um, which is not unusual, really, for kind of, you know, dam negotiations and things like that. I remember... Nigeria, I believe, has had some agreements with a few other neighboring countries that the Niger Dam um, passes through for like electricity sales or something like that, which um, in, in a few seconds I'll come back to as maybe a potential solution here. But um, Ethiopia, as of this past um, week, I believe on the 20th, had uh, had kind of formally inaugurated the, the dam with uh, the current Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed. Um, pressing a few buttons, whether or not actual activation buttons or not, I always find it's quite comical, the you know, cutting, you know, the uh, that type of thing. But um kind of, you know, launching out the dam and likewise launching, you know, additional hostilities between Egypt and Ethiopia. Egypt, of course, feeling like it's a threat to the long term water supply. And even just when you, you think about Egypt's identity and the Nile being the most famous famous river, et cetera, et cetera. But um, Ethiopia, of course, sees it as a way for them to um, foster continued development. The dam is going to be producing five thousand megawatts, which is double, which would double their electricity output currently. So you can only imagine what how significant that impact is for them. But you have, of course, um, on the other hand, the Egyptians who feel like, hey, you're you're damming up this river, that affects our water supply, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I know that they both all three countries have come to a agreement to not make any unilateral decisions on the now. Um, and Egypt feels like this is a violation of said agreements. Um, it's definitely a very tricky situation. I hope for a peaceful resolution. Um, Egypt has recently called, called for urgent negotiations, so um, we have to kind of see um, how that plays out hopefully in a peaceful manner that's um that comes to some resolution that of course guarantees you know current continue water supply while ensuring that the people of um the people of Ethiopia can can have power, et cetera, et cetera. Um but as we continue to go into renewables, um, you know, put aside the debate there's on on what on hydroelectric dams. It's going to be interesting to see how the supply um the supply is going to change lots of dynamics in inter-country relationships on the African continent. I would be curious to hear what your thoughts are here on this.
1: Yeah, um, before I share my thoughts, some context. So the part of the Nile that powers or it's supposed to power this dam is the Blue Nile. And the Blue Nile, most of the source of the water comes from Ethiopia. Um, And as you mentioned, flows downstream to Egypt and Sudan so ethiopia feels a sense of ownership over the water in a sense a sense of okay we provide the water why can't we use it um whereas as you mentioned Egypt, more more egypt and sudan feel like once if the water is used to operate this dam, it will limit their source of of water like it's a halt their supply um one thing that's one of the stakes that Ethiopia has laid claims to is that if they are able to operate this dam, they will be able to provide power supply to 60%. I think it's about 60% of their population that is without power supply right now, without consistent power supply right now. And it sounds fair to me. But um, well, you are right. They they have done this kind of behind Egypt and dance. Back, I mean, the, the three countries signed like a kind of like a treaty a few years ago that was that put an end to a really long time fight between the dams. So everything seemed relatively calm up until the, the, yeah, Ethiopia's move towards operating the dam Um, sort of behind these two countries' backs, which is not a great thing. And I, I find it to be an interesting move, especially given just. Everything else that Ethiopia is going through right now, I'm not sure that perhaps this was the right play. But I do understand, I think I think I understand the, the lay of claim to water supply and using it for a good purpose to provide electricity. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thanks for providing that additional clarity. I think very helpful. Yeah. Um, so would you like to take us on to... Uh, What's going on with our, our good friends in Mali?
1: Yes, yes, I will. So, for some of you who perhaps have listened to the episode that we released two episodes ago, so about a month ago, wow, a month now, um, on Kuz, our very cool and lightning episode, you may be sort of familiar with the ins and outs of the story. And what we're talking about is the Mali parliament approving a five year democratic transition plan and this comes in light of coups that were held um in Mali and now that the military is in in place the military initially said that they would uh, that's um they would um stage a vote uh democratic vote in February of 2022 which guys that's that's right now that's this month but um in December of last year they started proposing that the military stay in power for much longer so as to kind of wade off any security concerns um, so so as to establish better security control over Mali the ECOWAS which is the economic community of West African states d- don't like this and um last month they imposed a trade embargo and closed um their borders with Mali. So they've called this transition unacceptable. They don't they didn't like it at all. Um, and I can't help but understand why they don't. And so in seeing that the 120 members of the Mali parliament um, allowed for this five-year transition, one of the clauses that they stated is that the interim president, the interim military leader or president is not allowed to be um up for elections after the five year period is over, he's not allowed to govern again. But they did not specifically mention the the interim president's name, which is Colonel Asimi Guata by name. So it's it's a bit unclear as to whether if maybe during the five year period if he no longer becomes president, if he would be able to be elected after the transition period is over um and on my end i can't help but wonder is five years going to be five years is there going to be a push for more is this a good plan um but yeah kenny what are your thoughts
0: i think i have similar thoughts some of it is like you know five years okay one do we believe that that's true what's the likelihood of it getting extended again you know what do we do if that happens? Um, what are what is the leverage of military rulers? I would imagine likely have on on the people on the people who are part of that parliamentary organization at this point in time. But there are a few questions I have that I'm just like you know I'm like the feeling I guess is skepticism. Um, I'm highly skeptical about this process. Um, I my initial impression is that it's one of those. It's one of those um um it's one of those kind of delayed tactics and you know, you know, delay till they forget type of thing or delay till things are okay enough for us to justify the fact that we've delayed it already. When I'm concerns with be completely honest with you, I think the ECOWAS should continue to put pressure on Mali to make a transition to a democratic government. Because you know, why does a military government need five years for a transition? I, I struggle to understand that. Um, in addition to that, there's a lot of confusion around. You know, okay, the French military is being pushed out of Mali, um, which objectively I think is is a, is a good thing. Um, but you know, my concern is that then you have an overleveraged uh, Malian military without a route to a transition for the civilian for the for civilian government. But yeah, those are my those are my hot takes. Not not so hot tepid takes. I would say my tep my lukewarm takes. Um there for you, Michael.
1: Yeah, no, thank you for sharing. I agree with all of your sentiments a hundred percent. Um, would you like to take us on to our next story?
0: Sure. So this one was kind of curious in the midst of a lot of you know attention around, you know, you uh world governing international bodies like the UN, NATO, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, Algeria, Ethiopia, Nigeria, and South Africa have decided to do the, to create a a G4 nations um, with everybody's familiar with G7, G8, G20. Uh, Largely just means group of four, um, or group of eight, or group of seven. Um, Generally, it's used as a tool to bring countries together, um, largely through what most people would argue are symbolic meetings. and manifest for what they want the future of one certain context to look like. In this case, these four countries are coming together to, at least the promises that they're coming together to chart a future for what's, chart a perspective on what the future of the African continent would look like. Um, And to be completely honest with you, um, there are lots of questions that came out to mind, like, wait, how do these four countries come together? The initial impression is that they're just four countries that don't currently have beef with each other, um, which is why, you know, as we just mentioned earlier, Ethiopia is on the list, Egypt is not. Things like that are, are part of the dynamics there. Um, and then two, you know, for me, I think, you know, what's the point? Um, I, I worry about, you know, committees for everything, um, commitment for nothing. That is true, yeah. I'm going to keep that. I'm going to keep that. That was good. That was hard. I shouldn't. Uh, but, yes, that's kind of my concern, that this is just another thing that our presidents get to travel to for a meeting without actually affecting anything. But um, those are my initial thoughts. I think I would love to hear what you think about the new G4. The name is hot, though. G4. Better, yeah. Best G anything I've heard. G4 is, is good.
1: Um, it sounds like Power Rangers. Um, Thanks. I, I kind of agree with you. On the surface level... It appears to be a solid decision that oh we have things we have to do with why don't we join forces and try and target these issues and solve them together. On a broader context, though, like you mentioned, there are lots and lots of organizations and groups within the African continent that appear to be largely lack of better was useless, and so outside of the fancy name this feels like it could easily fall into that trap and become another organization that does um such. Outside of that, the commitment of just being part of a committee is not is not to be taken lightly. Like there is there's effort that needs to be put into that. And I don't think all of, maybe all of these countries are in positions to be putting in that effort right now. Um given everything that they're dealing with. Um, I mean it's not clear what this G four nations, what what the group actually stands for and what they actually aim to accomplish. And I think maybe as that becomes clear, maybe we can make more judgments and make more comments about it. But however, it just seems like another group, <laughs> um, for lack of better words. Yeah.
0: Big facts on would you like to speak a little bit about our next story in Angola?
1: Yeah, so if you guys are new to the podcast, maybe if you're completely new, this will probably be the first time you've heard us talk of climate change. But this is actually an issue that we have covered in in extensive detail that we've referred to in several news stories and we will continue to refer to because it's a real issue that is plaguing the world, but impacting Africa, the African continent the most. Um, And that's, in fact, um, in one of such countries that it's impacting is Angola. Uh, To be more specific, the southwest of Angola. Uh, Angola is going through one of the worst droughts that they've ever experienced. And on top of that, they've had locust invasions. Again, locust invasions is something we've covered um, before in the past, so please check out our prior episodes that that go through what's why they're locusts and what it means for the locust invasions to be happening. And as such, because of you know they're not getting any water, they're having droughts, they're not having harvests, and then locusts are eating those harvests on top of it. So you imagine the results of that being a lot of people are hungry, um, a lot of people are seeking out better climates, um, and seeking out better um to to fare better in general, and as such, people are flocking there, migrating to the neighboring country of Namibia. Such such um migration is not light; it's not like they walk two yards and they get to Namibia. It's they're walking day and night, traveling many kilometers. Um, on top of being hungry and not being able to access food to this neighboring country, where they will again, be treated as refugees and maybe not treated as well as they would as if they were citizens in their own country. So it's a really, really sad situation. It's why we as people, just everyone needs to pay better better attention to climate change and its effects, especially on our African continent. And if you are here listening to me thinking, "Uh, this sounds distant, this sounds like it will not affect you, I challenge you to say that it already is and it could get a lot more worse. Akiri, any thoughts?
0: Yes. Um it's one of those like great injustices that the continent that contributed at least the least to climate change is yeah. In many ways going to suffer the worst from it. Um in Angola specifically, I think it was I think you mentioned this one point six million people mm-hmm. at risk. It's just
1: it's a lot of people.
0: Yeah, it's it's a, Yeah, it's, it's an overwhelming, you know, situation. And at least that's that's the way it rests on my heart. At least, and and I think, and I think we need to be very intentional about who, how we support people, like what global systems for supporting people who are impacted by climate change and droughts and the things as a result of of you know the or uh, the sins of sins of the past or sins of the current. I don't even know which one. Sins of the current to so gotta kind of keep it a buck with you. Mm-hmm. But um you know I think something needs to be done hearing those stories of, you know, people dying on their way, having to eat you know, blades of it. Like, it's just it's really saddening. Um and uh, my hope is that's or my call really is that you know, countries are far more intentional about Countries that are far more intentional about stepping forward and and really really investing very heavily in really really ve- investing heavily in 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 a system that's you know it does for people who've suffered from this this the, from from climate change and the resulting droughts and even just the weather changes. But oh man, I'm, I'm I sus I suspect. Well, I'm. A, and uh, growing up, you know, people told us X, Y, and Z, we going to be the defining challenge of our time. It feels like everything is a defining challenge of our generation, man. Like, come on. Like, it's just these past three years, pandem- pandemic, you know, what's effectively another major war, like, you know, multiple major wars with your countries.
1: Cool's all over the place.
0: Cool's all over the place. Like, I change. Like, Look at yeah, I just, I want everybody to just relax. Let's just let's give it a few days. There's just like cooler heads prevail. It's just, it's a lot. Um, And, you know, but I do think sincerely so that climate change is going to be a big defining feature of our future and thinking critically about how we address that as early as possible is going to be determinant for us. But yeah, those are my thoughts.
1: Yeah. Um, I completely share this those thoughts. um want to take us into our final story for this news update?
0: Yes, this one was confusing <laughs> but also upsetting, But mostly confusing um i don't I don't know who thought like you know this is one of those things that they could have also quietly done right it's like And, of course, for listeners who don't have zero context and are hearing me berate an imaginary individual, is the story here is that Nelson Mandela's home has been opened to the public as a museum? Nope. As a landmark? Nope. As a memorial? Not even that. The former house and surrounding gardens of former South African presidents An anti-apartheid revolutionary Nelson Mandela is now accepting reservations after being transformed into a luxury hotel. Now, whoever thought this was the idea, this was the one, they even like launched a video on everything. And I've never been more flummoxed. I just, I was, it's like, you know, and maybe this is something, maybe there's something cultural going on here. I don't, you know, Looked online to kind of get a general sentiment of how South Africans feel about this and they seem to share my like really this this is you know let's let's build an out another a weird all to of capital it's just weird like no um if you're interested however um the now what is called sanctuary Mandela offers um you know lodging and a restaurant um with a mandela inspired menu which is I'm just looking forward to. It seeing what exactly that is. Um, but it has nine rooms and will run visitors from for from about $260 per night to about a thousand dollars per night for the presidential uh suite, which is located in Nelson Mandela's former bedroom. Now, whether or not miss Madi guys rolling in his grave remains to be seen because I don't know if they're also going to go build a hotel there. But this just feels weird to me. And you know, I understand that this was a magnificent home where he hosted lots of you know incredible, incredible celebrities and individuals and world leaders, but it just feels like the wrong way to memor- you know, memorialize, you know, his home. Um, this I clearly have strong feelings about this, but Uncle, I would love to know your thoughts.
1: Um, just for some context, so this was Nelson Mandela's first home post imprisonment. Um, and so I feel like it holds really great significance, and the home can only as a hotel it can only host up to eighteen guests at a time now the the room rates are quite high, but I'm not sure how they plan to sustain this hotel just on sixteen or is it eighteen guests um less than twenty guests i'm I'm not sure how. Well, they plan sustained it. I do think that there may have been other use cases for this home um as as a museum, as he said as 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 a place of cultural significance of some kind. I'm not saying that it's still not, but the availability of this this space this his first home to everybody is feels like it would be more available to the rich and famous, and that does not feel to align with what Nelson Mandela would have wanted, not that I knew the man personally, but just from his time on earth and from everything he stood for, it feels like he would not align with um what he would have wanted. Um, Yes, he previously used to host some very rich, famous people in the home, but it could if it was a museum, it would be great to like take people around and be like, okay, this is the room where Nelson Mandela and maybe Barack Obama first. Shared. I don't know whoever was was one of his visitors first sharing a meal. Maybe this is where they talked about X, X, and a third. Like, I could see being more suited to that purpose than as a hotel that is limiting in terms of the people. Cause who's going to be paying that money to come and stay in the hotel? It would be the the wealthy, the to wealth do can kind of afford it. Meanwhile, they, everyone else, I, I would either have to be working in the hotel or just kind of see from afar because they can't spend the night there. um And maybe there is a dual purpose to it. I hope. I hope that that's one thing that we're one context of are missing out on that we haven't seen. That yes, while it is used as a hotel, they could have tours and things like that. Maybe I've yet to see any explanation that would claim such, but yeah, I was I was very puzzled
0: by the news as well. Awesome, thank you for sharing that, Tanya. So I think through some of the stories we've discussed this week. I think the big takeaway for me is just this story of our collective interdependence. Um, we're seeing how actions in, in in Eastern Europe are affecting Africans. Um, we're seeing, you know, kind of this. Co, co, you know non-collaborative attempt at resolving this dam issue between Egypt and and the, the and in the Ethiopia and Sudan we're seeing how ECOWAS is stepping in in the in the, in the time of in, in with with the issues in Mali um, we're seeing more intentional efforts to come together with the g4 nations um and we're seeing how you know the, the drought in, in southwestern Angola has driven people to Namibia um so you know I don't know that I've ever really thought carefully about what great models for Pan-Africanism looks like or cross-African interaction, better still. Um, But it is important to keep in mind that our destinies are tied together. And that's a takeaway. That's, you know, one, of course, treating each other with kindness is critically important, but also taking deep thought to the ways we can get the best out of all of us as opposed to, finding the ways that divide us.
1: Yeah, and uh, for our planting sheep of the day, and this was one fact that I saw someone share on Twitter, and just to add to, um, the Sahara Desert isn't always a desert. It actually cycles through dry, as in desert, and green every 20,000 years. Now, I doubt we'll ever see that in our lifetime, but... It's just something no. to know. But also, the Sahara Deserts sometimes get snow. It's, it's a rare occurrence, but it does happen. And so that's just a fascinating geographical um, site that is full of many wonders um, outside of the ones that we've covered here today. But just thought I'd leave you guys um, with those nuggets.
0: All right. Well, my final word on this is that I'm built different and I'll see you in 20,000 years.
1: <laughs> all right see you then let us know how green the green sahara looks like
0: will do we'll see right. you listeners later and thank you so much for listening in again
1: yes thank you for listening